This morning, I want us to look at John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the fourth chapter of John. And we're going to look at what Lucas read for us. And that is an encounter that took place between Jesus and a woman at a well. A Samaritan woman. And we read verses 4, verse chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, and I'll pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will bless John and Carl as they're away. Bless them and their families. We thank you for this church. Father, I'm aware of the, the grief and the loss that has taken place here and at the same time your great encouragement and strength and blessing. And uh, I pray this morning as we look at your word that your spirit would make the word relevant to each one of us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So we're going to see an unexpected encounter between Jesus and a woman of Samaria. When we go to Liberia, Africa, they don't have any running water. They don't have any government services, no trash pickup, no plumbing, no electricity in most places. It's a very dirty place. But what they do have is clean water because Western missionary organizations and charitable organizations have installed wells. Wells have been dug, and so you routinely see people coming to the well to get their water. It's women, almost without exception, because in that culture the women do all the work. Well, in our culture they do all the work too. But there, the women are seen at the well every morning with a number of containers that they fill and with their children's assistance, they carry it back home. I recently got back from Zambia, Africa, on another Disciple Makers Multiplied Mission trip. And uh, I observed something that I couldn't believe. At the well there behind the church where we were conducting a Bible workshop, there was a woman, there was also a man, and another woman, and they filled up a garbage can, a clean garbage can, like you've seen those typical size gray round garbage cans. They filled it almost completely full with water, and this would have been so heavy I couldn't have possibly picked it up. And the three of them managed to get this garbage can full of water and put it on the lady's head. And she by herself walked that that garbage can full of water home. <laughs> and if I ever did anything like that, well, it would crush me. Just amazing the strength that, that uh, they have. So going to the well in Africa and in India, I've been in remote parts of India. In my job with uh, the United States government, I traveled to approximately 30 countries. Had the privilege from your tax dollars at your expense to travel the world, and I've seen it in India where they go to the well. And this is, uh, so we want to put ourselves in that kind of scenario, no running water. So this woman is, has a background. We didn't read all of this story because we'd be here 
till one o'clock, and John told me I have to be done at 12.45 exactly. And I plan to be done then. But this woman who lived in Samaria had been married five times, and she was now living with someone who was not her husband. So she had experienced the downside of human relationships. And many of us have experienced disappointments in marital and family relationships. Not everybody celebrates Christmas in the same way. For some people who have lost loved ones or have had divorces and family breakups, Christmas and holidays in general can be a discouraging and a depressing time. Now, this is a woman who has experienced discouragement and depression. She's experimented with human relationship. She's now living with a a man that's not her husband. And she is most likely not popular in her community. The wives were always holding on to their husbands when this woman was around because they didn't know who her next victim would be. And so... Jesus is speaking to some, will be speaking to someone who understands broken relationships and who has lived a life of sin and immorality. Now, this is is good news for me because I share that woman's condition in my heart. Not all the same issues she has. Some of her issues maybe were more overt than mine. But the fact is, we all share with her a sinful nature, a sinful tendency inherited from our great-great-grandfather, Adam. And so we have Adam's sinful nature. And this woman didn't know it, but she was in need of a savior. So let's, oh, and I put in the note here that this appointment was marked on the calendar of heaven before the world began. But this woman didn't know it. Jesus knew it, but the woman didn't know it. All right, let's look at the historical setting, and that's verses 3 through 6. Verses 3 through 6. When the Lord, the Lord Jesus, learned of this, this issue about the disciples baptizing and John's disciple, there was a competitiveness going on, he left the situation... And he, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. I want you to see the geographical setting here. If you notice on your map, at the very bottom you have the word Judea. Okay? We, we hear these, these places, Galilee, but we don't know much about them. So if you look at your map, you have Judea in the south, and that's where you have Jerusalem, and you, pro- you may not be able to read it, but below Jerusalem is Bethany, and uh, Bethlehem is at the bottom where Jesus was born. And then as you move up, you see Samaria, and uh, you see the town of Sychar, and Sychar was the center of Samaritan culture. We might say that it was the capital of Samaria. And this is significant because in Sychar was the place where Jacob had dug a well for his family and his flocks. And that's where Jesus meets this woman. 
And then if you go further north, you have Galilee, and you have Nazareth, and you have other places that we've heard about, Capernaum, and you have the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus did a lot of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. So for the sake of, of this chapter, Jesus is going to be traveling from Judea to Galilee, and on the way is Samaria. And the next thing I want you to see is what we would describe as the standard route or route, depending on where, from where you are in the U.S., how you say that word. But the, the normal... So if you, were, if you were living in that day and you pulled up maps on your phone, on your smartphone, and you put, you know, current location, and then you put in that you want to go to Nazareth, this would have been the first way to travel that would pop up. Now, you could select an alternate route, but the problem with the alternate route is it went through the mountains, and there were no real highways back then, and also it went through Samaria. And Samaria was not a good place to go through. It was not safe. There was crimes there, a crime committed especially if you were Jewish, because the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was not good, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. So if you put it into, if you asked um, Siri, or if you put it into your map quest, this is the, the, the way that would come up. It's not the most direct, but it is the most efficient. And so Orthodox Jews would follow this route. They wanted to avoid Samaria. So what they would do is they'd leave Jerusalem, cross over the Jordan River. You can see the, maybe you can see the narrow line of the Jordan River. And then, being on the opposite side of Samaria, they would bypass Samaria. So this is the Beltway. This is the Samaritan Beltway. And then they would cross back over to get into Galilee. This is the way that most Orthodox Jews would travel. Now, this is the way that Jesus traveled. He went smack dab right through Samaria. The passage tells us he needed to go through Samaria. Many commentaries believe that this is a reference to not that he needed to go there to get there because there was an alternate route, but that he needed to go there because he had a purpose in mind. He had an appointment from all eternity written in the calendar book of heaven to meet a lady, a woman, a sinner, in the town of Sychar. Now in verses 4 through 7, we see an awkward encounter. Verses uh, 7 through 8, rather. When a Samaritan woman, verse 7, came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So I want you to put yourself in this situation. This is a, a picture I took in India when I was in a remote location going actually to a tiger preserve. I was on a security detail for President Clinton when he went to visit a tiger preserve in India. It's a good job. And this woman, I was in a bus and I took this picture out, to, out of the window. She was walking to the well, just like we talked about. And Jewish people, especially Orthodox Jews, would have no interaction with women. So if you're an Orthodox, I say Jewish people, I meant Orthodox Jews. They had no interaction in public with women. 
the only person they would talk to was their wife. And they had no eye contact, no conversation. So women in that society, not just Samaritan women, but all women, were considered second-rate citizens. They would not engage in theological discussion. Men would not interact with other women, only their own wives. And then Samaritan women were especially despised. They were considered to be unclean by nature. So, you know, in the Jewish economy, there was a big deal about being clean or unclean. The priests were washing all the time to be clean. There were, if you had a leprosy or a skin disease, you were unclean. Well, they just decided that Samaritan women were unclean from birth, period, and could never be made clean. Now, the reason for this is that the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were uh, half-Jewish and half-Assyrian or other foreign countries. So what happened, and and this is in the Old Testament, during um, the Old Testament there was a time because of Israel's disobedience that the Lord allowed the captivity to take place. There were two captivities. Basically this means that you're conquered and you're carried away to a, a, a foreign land. In this case, the king that was conquering the, the Israelites was the king of Assyria. And what he did is he took a lot of Israelites out of Judea and Samaria and he repopulated them in his kingdom, in the Assyrian kingdom. What he's doing is breaking apart nationalism and he's trying to prevent any kind of uprising or rebellion in the future. And then he brings Assyrians and he settled these Assyrians and some other foreigners that he had conquered in the land of Samaritan, oh, Samaria. Over time, they intermarried, they mixed, and their offspring were the Samaritans of Jesus' time. So the Jews considered them not to be true Jews, and they despised them. They considered them to be unclean, and in return, the Samaritans despised the Jews. They hated the Jews. So there was this racial tension. Hence the story of the Good Samaritan. Right? You heard about the Good Samaritan? He was actually attacked. To go back to our map, he was attacked south of Jerusalem. The, the, the guy that was injured, and he was a Jewish person, and it was the Samaritan that helped him. And that's what makes the story so significant. I mean, there was the priest that went by, the rabbi, the, the teacher, the lawyer, and they're all like, oh, what happened to this guy? That's really sad. Somebody ought to start a charity. I've got to get to the temple. And someone else came along and said, oh, poor fella, you know, this, this whole crime thing, somebody's got to deal with it. And he had to get to wherever he was going. And then it was the Samaritan, the despised enemy of the Jews and the despised enemy of this man who had been attacked that helped. And that's what gives that story such significance. And so we're in that kind of scenario right here. You see at the bottom there that this we have recorded a prayer of Jewish men. How would you like this, you wives? Your husband gets up in the morning and he prays. He leads the family in prayer and he says, I thank thee that I am not a woman and I am not a Samaritan. Praise you, God. That was what the Jewish men prayed in that day. Now here's this woman. She's coming to the well. Most commentaries believe the sixth hour was 12 noon. It's the heat of the day. She's going to be carrying a lot of water, 
I mean, just imagine carrying these two pieces of pottery and brass or bronze filled with water. You can imagine how heavy that would be. And that is typical. And so this woman is coming to the well, probably coming at 12 noon because she doesn't want to interact with the other women. She's despised. The other women would have come in the morning and in the evening when it was cooler. And she's coming to the well, hoping to be alone. And as she approaches the well, she sees a man. And she's like, oh, who's this? And as she gets closer, she sees that it's a Jewish rabbi. An Orthodox Jew, in her opinion. Rabbi means teacher. Whether his dress showed that or whatever, the disciples had gone into town to buy food. And so she comes to the well, and I, I can if we put ourselves in that scenario, we would have to believe it was a very uncomfortable situation. No eye contact. You know, like he's over there. She's, she went to the other side of the well. She doesn't look at him. Uh, it's like he's not there. It's, it, it feels strange to have this Jewish prejudice in her mind, this Jewish prejudice teacher who considers her unclean to be sitting there at the well while she's going about her, her daily task. And I'm sure her desire was to get the water and get out of there. And then Jesus says, as she's looking down into the well, that well still exists today, by the way. It's 135 feet deep. And it be, the Greek Orthodox Church has built a little shrine over it. So if you pay, you can go in and see it and maybe throw some coins down in there. I don't know. And, and also you can drink some of the water from that well, even today. But here she is. She's going about her business. And... Jesus says, will you give me a drink? Now, to us, that means nothing. But to her, that would have been astonishing. What are you talking about? Look at her response. Verse 9. You are a Jew. I'm sure she paused. She looks up. And she says, you are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. Hello, Jewish rabbi. Don't you know that we don't talk? Don't you know that we don't have eye contact? Don't you know that you Jews resent us and despise us and treat us as unclean? How is it? How dare you ask me for a drink? And you know, I think she was probably saying, you must be really thirsty, man. You, you're asking me for a drink? And then we have this note, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And in the, the Greek language, the idea is there's no friendly associations. There were some business dealings, we know that. The disciples went into town to buy food. But it also, it's a, it's a, it's a phrase that confuses translators in the original Greek language because it implies kind of sharing a meal together, interacting in, in close intimacy, or specifically sharing dishes together. And so some translations actually say here, instead of Jews have no dealings, they say Jews do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. And we know from historians that a cup that had been used by a Samaritan, a Jew would never touch. 
So if you went into a, a, a restaurant, you know, they probably had McDonald's there in Samaria, and you say, you know, has, well, that wouldn't be a very good illustration because you throw away your cup at McDonald's. But if you went into a restaurant where they actually had real dishes instead of plasticware, and the waiter brought you or the waitress bought you a glass of water, if you were an Orthodox Jew, you would probably ask, if you were in Samaria, has a Samaritan ever used this glass? And they would say, well, sure, you know, we, we use them, we wash them. And you'd say, okay, no thanks, I won't have that water. Orthodox Jews refused to use Samaritan dishes because they were unclean. So here's this woman. Jesus doesn't have a cup. Jesus doesn't have anything to get the water, and he asks this woman of Samaria if he can use her cup, the very cup she probably had been drinking out of right there on the scene. So you can see the irony of this situation. Now this woman thinks that Jesus is asking her for a drink because he's thirsty. But Jesus is asking her for a drink because she's thirsty. Do you get that? She's the one who's thirsty spiritually. Now, Jesus was no doubt thirsty physically. He became a man. The music this morning demonstrated that God became human. Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh. But I believe Jesus was asking not because he was thirsty, but because she was thirsty for the water of life. John chapter 4, listen to what verse 10 says. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now I think when Jesus <laughs> said that, the woman probably said, Come again? <laughs> what are we talking about here? You're the one who's thirsty. You need a drink. What are you talking about here? And so Jesus starts by introducing this woman, who, by the way, has not asked to be saved, has not sought to be saved, has not inquired how to be saved. Jesus asks this woman, or tells this woman, about the gift of God. He said, if you only knew the gift of God, now, what is a gift? I think that in the, the U.S. especially, we've kind of lost sight of a gift. You know, we go to the grocery store. I go to the grocery store with my wife. We have public supermarkets in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, they have two-for-one sales. So you buy one and you get one free. The implication is that when you buy one, you get a gift. But what if you don't buy one? Do you still get the second one free? So it's not really free, is it? Something tells me that somewhere in the deal, I'm no mathematician, but the store is still making money. Maybe off of that product, maybe off another product, but it's not really free. And then we had an advertiser in our, on TV in our old neighborhood where we used to live in Maryland, an automobile dealership, and they said if you bought a new car, you would get a television free. Wow. Why don't I buy two cars? 
You mean all I have to do is spend $39,000 plus tax and tip and other costs, and I get a free $250 television set. Where do I line up? Where do I sign up? Now, now go into that car dealer and say, I saw your ad, I would like to get the free TV. They'll laugh you out of the dealership, right? Another example, Christmas time. When I was a boy, my mom, I had three brothers. It's a very competitive family. And my Aunt Gladys would buy us Christmas presents. And whatever my Aunt Gladys spent on us four boys, my mom would go out and buy a gift that cost about the same amount of money for my cousin Diane. Now, do you see the inequity here? We were getting things like spinning tops and tiddlywinks. Those are the little plastic discs that you see. Now, you, you people who are younger, I mean, I'm a very young man, you can tell that. But you people who are young, young people here, you probably don't know what tiddlywinks are. Because you have smartphones and games, but you don't know what you're missing. Because tiddlywinks were these little plastic discs that you tried to flip with your thumb into that one of those round red cups. You don't know what you're missing, folks. You know how long, you know how long that game keeps you engaged and excited? About seven seconds. That's what we would get. Now, Diane, this one year I remember specifically, I was about 12 years old. Diane, my cousin, Aunt Gladys' daughter, she got, my mom bought her a Mattel thing maker. That's the, the bigger picture there. Now, when you're 12 years old, a thing maker is amazing. It makes things. And you just, it came with this gooey stuff and you put it in the mold and it had its own little, you know about thing makers? You had one? Bless you. That's amazing. I never did. <laughs> Diane got a Mattel thing maker, and we got tiddlywinks. Now, Aunt Gladys meant the same amount. But you know what? That kind of interchange, it's not really a gift, right? I mean, a gift, you give not out of obligation. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to give out, out of obligation. You'll create all kinds of family stress if you change the rules, but usually we give at Christmas time. It's a give and take kind of a thing. It's an exchange. Okay, you know, some of us, I'm not going to say that we do this in our family, but well, how much did they spend on us last year? Okay, well, they, you know, they only gave us like 50 bucks worth of whatever that was they gave us. And, you know, like in my family, my son gives me a tie for Christmas. Then the next Christmas, I give it back. And he has no idea he gave it to me. That's really not true giving. A gift, by definition, is something freely given without cost or obligation. Something freely given without cost or obligation. That means when I give you something, I don't come back and say, hey, you remember... Two years ago, I gave you that MP3 player. I want it back. Or one time I gave a gift to a man. I'm a, I'm a 
amateur photographer and I have a large printer at home and I print pictures from my trips and uh, I printed out a picture and I framed it for a fellow worker and to me it had great value because it represented a lot of time spent trying to photograph and purchasing photo equipment experience over the years. I carefully framed it and I gave it to him and then he said, well, let me give you a couple bucks. That was kind of an insult. It's not a gift, right? I mean, I'm giving you something. I don't expect you to give me a couple bucks. So a gift, and the reason I emphasize this is in our culture, in Christianity today, in evangelical Christianity, the concept and definition of a gift has been changed. In most churches today, I say most churches because I've explored a lot of them, especially in the Charlotte area, most churches, when they talk about the gift of eternal life, they don't actually mean a gift. They mean that you have to do something to earn the gift. Well, that's a contradiction. You don't earn a gift. You can earn a reward, but you don't earn a gift. A gift, if it's truly a gift, is not something that you earn or deserve. Jesus, when he talks about the gift of God, he's talking about a real gift. Now, you are familiar, I'm sure, with the verse in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace, undeserved, unmerited, unearned, for by grace you have been saved, saved from God's judgment, saved from your sins, through faith. Faith is simple, childlike trust, nothing more than that. Faith is not, oh, I'm going to give up this for Jesus. Faith is not, oh, I'm going to surrender everything I have to Jesus. Faith, the meaning of the word faith means to be persuaded of something, to believe something to be true, and or to trust. That's the meaning. That's the meaning of the word faith. So this verse says it's not by works. The faith, the, this gift that God gives, and in the original language, what is referred to as that not of yourselves, is the gift itself. This grace, this salvation is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Now, I know I listen to John's teaching. I know that he emphasizes this, but I come to you today to emphasize this again. You know, when John and I go to Liberia, we are seeing amazing things happen when people believe the gospel of the grace of God. John and Brett Nasworth, the founder of DM2, many of you know him. When they first went to Carysburg, Liberia, I think five or six years ago, they gave a survey to all the attendees at the workshop. I believe there were about 40 or 50 attendees. I only started traveling to Liberia in the last two years. And they gave a survey, and then the survey, it asked the requirements in order for a person to have eternal life. Do you know there was not one of the attendees, not one of the attendees knew the gospel of the grace of God. And they were all Protestant, fundamental evangelicals. They wrote on their survey that you had to be baptized in order to get eternal life. They wrote on their survey that you had to do good deeds. They wrote on their survey that you had to surrender your life fully to the Lord to be saved. They wrote on their survey that you had to speak in tongues in order to be saved. None, not one, knew the gospel of the grace of God. 
When John and Brett, and now recently myself, when we go there and we preach the gospel, lives are being changed, and we can't believe it. There's no human explanation. Men who at one point, in, in some of the workshops they've done, pastors have stood up and rebuked Brett Nasworth and John, saying, you can't teach this. You can't teach that it's by faith in Christ alone. You can't teach it's by grace. Don't listen to these guys. Some of the very men that stood up and rejected the gospel have now come to believe the gospel. Not, and I'm not talking only about Liberia, Bolivia, and uh, many other places. We even have workshops going on in Siberia. And we're seeing this around the world as people hear the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he rose again, and that whoever puts their faith in him receives forgiveness of sins. It's like a light goes on. For some, it happens almost immediately. For some, it takes years. One man, uh, an older pastor in a workshop that I, attend, I, that I taught with John the last time we did one, which I think was last spring, this man had been coming from the very beginning, and it was the first time he understood the gospel after years of hearing the gospel, when John spoke about Abraham being justified by faith alone, it clicked for this man, and he believed the gospel for, for the first time. This is the message that saves. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God. It's the power that God uses to save people. That's the only message we have. That, that has that power, that Christ died for our sins, that he rose again, and by simple childlike faith, relying on him alone for our eternal destiny, for the forgiveness of sins, we are saved forever. Not by human effort or good deeds, not by religious rituals or sacraments, baptism, communion, not by personal devotion or surrender, not by feeling sorry for your sins, turning from your sins, or pleading for forgiveness, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not bad to feel sorry for your sins. It's not bad to turn from your sins. None of us can do it without the Holy Spirit. But it's not how we're saved. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now let's look at who's making the offer. And we're going to jump ahead to chapter 4. And verse 25. Chapter 4 and verse 25. The woman said, now Jesus has been in a conversation. They've been talking about her adulterous relationships. They've been talking about the Samaritan temple that was right there on Mount Gerizim within view of the, of the well. And now the woman says... I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, you are looking at him. I who speak to you am he. Now again, we read these words, we don't think much of it, but this would have been astonishing to this woman. This would have been startling. She heard it, she believed it, and she left her water jugs her water jars, and she went into the village to tell people, could this be the one? Could this be the Christ? He's told me everything I've ever done. And some of the men in the village were probably saying, everything? 
He told, was I, was I in that story at all? You know, did, did any of our experiences in there? This woman is hearing the God of the universe, the Lord of glory, the creator of everything. He's sitting with her in human form at the well, and he says, I am he. The gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What is living water in this passage? Verse 14. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The analogy, living water, represents eternal life. Now, Lucas, when he was reading the passage, and after he read the passage and he prayed, he talked about one drink. How much water do you have to drink to have eternal life? One drink. Jesus says to this woman, if you take one drink, you'll never thirst again. Now, this doesn't mean as a believer that you won't go through discouragement or thirsty times or hard times or disappointing times. We're talking about the initial gift of eternal life. As Lucas implied, the gift that God gives, and that drink represents faith alone, is everlasting, never-ending, and eternal. You know what the word everlasting means? Everlasting. Eternal life is life eternal. It never ends. Nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to lose it. And if you think you can lose your salvation, there's a very good likelihood that you think you had something to do with getting it in the first place. And I believe if you think that you can lose your salvation, you have not, and I say this, I hope lovingly, you have not yet tasted of the grace of God. Because the gift that Jesus gives is eternal, never-ending. Two alternative, if you drink the water from the well, and in Jeremiah, God said, my people have committed two sins, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water, they go to the cisterns but find no water. They return with their jars unfilled. You can drink of the water of this world and you'll thirst again. And some of us have tried it. You know, pleasure, you drink from that well. Power, influence, you drink from that well. Success, money, whatever it is, you'll thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I shall give him shall never thirst will never thirst again, but the, the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. How much does it cost, right? That's usually the question, okay? You said it's a gift. You said, how much do you want for it? You know, you already took the offering. Revelation 22, I will give the, the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Why is it free? 
Is this cheap grace? That's what people say. Oh, that's if you tell people you believe in Jesus Christ. I have a friend who's a Catholic who's coming to our Bible study, and he says, well, that's, that's cheap grace. You're saying that you just put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you don't have to do anything? It's not cheap grace, it's free grace. And it's also not cheap because it costs God his only son. And Jesus spilled his precious blood. 1 Peter 1.18, we weren't redeemed. You were redeemed, purchased, not with money, but with the precious blood of Christ. Is your salvation based on the precious blood of Christ alone? Or are you counting on something of your own goodness or your own effort? The reason it's free, not cheap, but free, is because it was purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And then who qualifies? And this is where we'll end today. Who qualifies for this gift? First thing, are you a sinner? Oh, you say, yeah. I, I, I met a man who said, you know, you don't know what I did. This man was older. He was getting uh, close to, to dying. And he said to me, you know, I heard what you have to say after a Bible study, but, you know, I, when I was in the Navy, when I was overseas, you, would not, you don't not know what I did. Another man virtually admitted to me that he was guilty of murder when he served in Vietnam. Now, a lot of men served faithfully, dutifully, honorably, but he couldn't believe that he could be saved. Well, you know what the Bible says? If you're a sinner, you qualify. You might be a big sinner. You might be a little sinner. In DM2, we talk about, you know, there are moral sinners, there are religious sinners, there's criminal sinners. Somebody might be listening to this MP3 in a prison cell who's committed rape or murder, child abuse. You qualify, my friend, because you're a sinner. You're a sinner like me. We both qualify on the same basis of the woman at the well. And then the next qualification, are you thirsty? If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, all it takes is one drink. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, anyone who looked at the serpent was healed, so anyone who looks at me will be saved. All it takes is one drink. All it takes is one look. This is the will of my Father, that whoever looks to the Son and believes on him has eternal life. Then the last thing is this. If you're a believer, start enjoying what you have. You know, I know you took a drink. You could say, oh yeah, I got saved back. I can remember. It was great. And, but what about since then? Enjoy what you have. You don't have to take another drink. Lucas made that clear. But you already have the source, and that source, according to John 7, is the Holy Spirit who lives within you. So enjoy the drink. If you're a believer, if you're an unbeliever, one drink. Put your faith in Christ alone and you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of God. We thank you that Jesus cared enough to go through Samaria to meet a woman who needed to know him. And we thank you that he gives us living water through faith alone. In his glorious name we pray, amen.